Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last week was a lot of uh, crying on my part and weeping and dealing with the suddenness of Carl's passing on uh, Saturday. And this week has uh, been dominated uh, by so many of us in terms of ministry and, and trying to love and serve while we ourselves mourn. This morning we're going to turn our attention back to 1 Corinthians 8. And we are going to give ourselves to the task of diving into God's Word so that we can better understand it. I know this is what Carl lived for us to do on Sunday mornings, to get into the Word of God, and and that's the direction that we're going to go. Uh, I want to begin by reading the first three verses, because we've gone through the first three verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So a bit of a review. Now let me read them to you. Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Now by way of review, a few weeks ago, we talked about the phrase, knowledge puffs up. And the idea of puffing up is a reference to pride and personal pride. The more you know about something, it's natural to feel more accomplished in that particular field. As if you have the answers, and and you might. Uh, You're the authority, and perhaps you might be. That's just the natural thing that knowledge does. It makes one more confident in what they know. There's nothing in the New Testament, nothing in the Old Testament, that would give us a negative impression of knowledge and the gaining of knowledge. Uh, In fact, we're going to see, even this morning in this text, uh, the very first thing that Paul is going to do to to deal with this issue that they're facing is give a definitive statement for people to know how they should think about this particular issue. Uh, But knowledge puffs up. And there's the phrase in there, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So for the Christian, particularly for the Christian, as we gain a better understanding of the Lord Jesus, we should be informed by that understanding of just how far we have to go before we are truly transformed into the image of Christ. How many of you have ever learned from a Bible study, from God's Word, something about God that makes you rethink something you thought you had nailed down in the past? Anybody ever had that experience? Okay. So for the Christian, whatever we profess to know about God should come with the caveat that we ourselves are not perfect in our knowledge. Paul acknowledges this in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. You know, right now we know in part. Right now our knowledge is partial. Now we can be solid about what we know and we can know what the Bible says is true, but a Christian should conduct himself or herself with the kind of gracious humility that on some of these topics that the Bible does not speak clearly and definitively to, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. So there's a fine line between Christian confidence in core doctrines and a personal confidence in, I know God and I know the Bible and I can speak to what each person should do in each situation they find themselves in. Any person who thinks they possess that kind of superior knowledge, just bring all your problems to me and I can tell you what to do. 
Any person who thinks they've attained that height, just run all of your questions by me and I'll throw out all the answers. Anybody who thinks they've reached that plateau, Paul says, does not know as he ought to know. Does not carry himself with knowledge as he ought to carry himself with knowledge. So knowledge is good. Knowledge is commendable. We're here learning from the Bible this morning. But knowledge comes with inherent dangers, and human beings are prone to pride to begin with. Love, on the other hand, always builds up. Christian love always edifies. It always looks with mercy and compassion and asks, what might I do to serve? What might I do to comfort? What might I do to help? When Jesus dies on the cross, it's an act of love. It's an act of compassion. It's an act of mercy. Knowledge informs the Lord that we are sinners, that we are not worthy of his sacrifice, that we deserve judgment, but the cross is a demonstration of love. The cross is a demonstration of one man laying down his life to save us all. Then to finish a summary here in verse 3, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You get in verse 3 the, the, the comparison of love and knowledge put together in this really kind of poetic conclusion talking about love and knowledge. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Being known by God is the real treasure here. You know, being known by God is the real thing to attain to here. Having a relationship with Jesus, having a part in God's covenant people, having a place as God's child in his eternal inheritance, this is where the real treasure is. Not being able to spit out an answer to every question somebody would have. That, that kind of knowledge can be helpful, can be good. We should try to know what we can about God from his word. We're certainly informed in our knowledge about God as we go on in Christian life. But the real treasure is to be known by God as opposed to how much I can simply know about Him. It's important. But it's not everything. So now we press on in verse 4 and we get to the matter at hand. Read with me now verses 4 through 6. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols... We know what an idol, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through him we live. So the first, first point that I want to make, first sub-point, first topic that I want to uh, cover this morning is knowing what's right is important. Knowing what's right is important. This is Paul's section of knowledge. The question has come to the Corinthian church. Is it right or wrong to eat food if it has been sacrificed to an idol. Lots of temples in Corinth. And I know this is review from a couple weeks ago, but 
lots of temples in the city of Corinth. Lots of idolatry. Intermingled with the idolatry of what went on in those temples is the commerce of buying and selling food. Because in each of these temples, animals are being sacrificed. There is something that must be done when an animal is killed. Something that must be disposed of. Something that must be practically dealt with. And a portion would usually go to the offering to be burnt or to be offered to the idol in that temple. A portion would go to the priests to eat, consume for themselves. But a portion, a significant portion, would go out into the marketplace to be bought and sold. Uh, Maybe it was sold from the the priest or the leaders of the temple uh, to a vendor and then sold into the marketplace by a vendor, in which case you wouldn't really know if it was offered to an idol or not. Or maybe it was sold at the gates of the temple by the priests, by the temple people themselves, in case, in that case you would know it had been offered to an idol. And there are all kinds of, of confusion around, is this right or wrong to do this? And I think you could... You could wrap your hand around at least one element of that. Someone might raise their hand and say, we should not be a part of the commerce system in any way, shape, or form if the proceeds are going to go in any way, shape, or form to what's going on in this temple. Because there are awful things going on in these temples. There's blatant sin going on in these temples. And what's even worse than blatant sin going on, these temples are leading people away from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and into the slavery of the worship of these false deities, the slavery of the sacrificial system, the slavery of the morality that will condemn them to eternal hell. And you can see how a reasonably minded person would say, commercially, we should have nothing to do with any of this. But what's perhaps harder for us to wrap our minds around, since presumably the overwhelming majority, if not all of us here today, have never worshipped ourselves in a temple like this what's presumably harder for us to understand is the people who had come out of this idolatrous system they knew what the insides of these temples looked like they'd watched the sacrifices they had engaged in the sin not merely the sin of idolatry but the gross and gross and grotesque things that took place in the worship of these idols. They had felt inside their heart the tie that bound them to the religious system of the day. They had known the slavery by which now Christ had set them free. They had felt the spiritual torment of this religious system. And they could not, and here's the key, in good conscience, have anything to do with it without all of it being reminded to them over and over again. They could not, in good conscience, separate something even as trivial as having a meal from the very personal experience they themselves had had with this particular system. Now, Paul speaks right off the bat true things into the Christian church. True things. First, concerning the things offered to idols, an idol isn't anything. 
These idols that had so much power over people, they had no power themselves. An idol is not anything to be afraid of. Sometimes people will observe a religious system, a temple, a worship, a ceremony, and they'll look at it with the chanting and with the, with the symbolism and the bowing and the singing, and they'll get the impression, oh my goodness, something serious is happening here. Something spiritual is happening here. And Paul says right off the bat, an idol is nothing. Nothing to be revered, nothing to be respected, nothing to be feared. It's nothing. If you want to mourn for those engaged in the practice of idolatry because they are submitting themselves to the bondage of a God that can't save them, then mourn for them. If you want to acknowledge the gravity of the spiritual deception that takes place when a man or a woman or a child prostrates themselves down before a little statue, then acknowledge the gravity of it. It is a grave thing. It is an offense towards the one true living God who created that person. That they would submit themselves to something crafted by a carpenter's hand, forged in a fire, kindled by a human being. It's a travesty, and if you want to mourn for it, if you want to acknowledge the gravity of it, go ahead. But do not mistake the seriousness of it for spirituality. Because the only spiritual thing happening is the great expression of spiritual death by a people who know no better, who'll do no better, who'll believe no better. Paul says, we know an idol is nothing in this world. Paul was not afraid about what some false god was going to do to him for saying this. No more afraid than Elijah was when he's mocking all the prophets of Baal saying, Hey, I understand why your gods aren't answering you. Perhaps they're asleep. Maybe they're on vacation. Maybe they're relieving themselves behind a bush somewhere. Uh, you know, call harder. Scream louder. Maybe your god is on a long trip and he just can't hear you. Paul's no more afraid of these idols then Elijah the prophet was, and he's telling these people, and this might have been very hard for them. Again, we don't come from a culture of little golden statues everywhere, of animal sacrifices at every corner. But it might have been very hard for them to disconnect the spiritual element that they had embraced so long in idolatry from the association of these idols' names and the objects you don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to give them any respect. You don't have to pay them any attention. They are nothing. And that there is no other God but one. Christians are not respecters of religious systems. I can look at all the other religions in the world and acknowledge that there are people who wholeheartedly believe in them, but I am no respecter of their beliefs. I respect their right to have beliefs, but I have no respect at all for them. They condemn people to eternal hell. They subject people to slavery. They make people numb to the reality of the one true living God who I serve. I am committed to my king, not anyone else's. 
I am committed to my God, not anyone else's. Paul says, there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, even if they have names, Zeus, whatever they may be, whether in heaven, you know, all the gods that the Greeks and the Romans acknowledged existed in some place in the clouds, or whether they're on the earth, like the Old Testament gods of the Philistines, the god of uh, the fish and the god of the sea and the god of the crops and the god, whether they're on heaven or whether they're on earth, there are many gods and there are many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, and here's, here's where he speaks, knowledge into this particular food situation that they're in there is one god the father of whom are all things and we for him there is one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and through whom we live the food that is offered to an idol and a temple does not belong to any other god but one the fire that's kindled belongs to no other God but one. The meat that comes out of it belongs to no other God but one. We serve the one true living God. And on this earth, He shares possession with no one. It's all His. Oh, we can say this belongs to that God. And this belongs to that God. And this belongs to me. And this belongs to Justin. Understand. There is one God who it all belongs to and we only live through His own gracious gift of life. We only breathe through His gracious gift of life. Sinner or saint. So first, Paul confirms the right things that everyone ought to know. He does not merely embrace ignorance or ambiguity, nor does he condemn the Corinthians for asking this question in the first place. They have a legitimate question. They want to know what's right. He helps them. He tells them. He informs them. This is the right way to think about this, you Corinthian church. You should know the right things. Look, it is good to wrestle with challenging things. It is good to ask the questions, what does God want me to do? How should I think theologically through this? How should I think about this food, this drink, this job, this activity, this music, this play, this game? How should I think about my family? How should I think about these obligations? That's good. Paul doesn't condemn them for asking the questions. Instead of condemnation, he graciously tries to help them think through this particular issue theologically. And he does. People can believe they worship other gods, but there are no other gods to worship. It's all deception and make-believe. It's all pretend. Our God is the God of all things, including these foods that are creating this issue. Now, second point. First one, knowing what's right is important. Okay? I think we would all agree with that. In fact, for many of us, that's all we care about in these controversial issues. But that's not all that's important. Second thing, a discussion on strength and weakness. A discussion on strength and weakness. Verse 7, however, 
That's a big word once you just said something so fundamentally true, right? You're not supposed to say the word however after you say things that are fundamentally true, are you? The sky is blue, however. <laughs> I mean, not unless you're going to add some caveat. The sky is blue, except at this time and except in this light. So maybe Paul's saying, however, to say, oh, but in some cases there are other gods. And in some cases things do belong to right? is that. Is that why he's saying, however? No, that's not why. He's saying, here's the truth, but... You should think about something else too. And here's what he says. There is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, when he says there is not in everyone that knowledge. The person who thinks that knowledge is everything would simply raise their hand and say, well, but Paul, you just clarified. So now, I mean, unless someone wants to say you're a liar, Paul, now there is in everyone that knowledge, right? So no, no dispute anymore. That's not what he's saying. When he says there is not in everyone that knowledge, he piggybacks with for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat. He's talking about those for whom this is not merely a matter of intellect and knowledge. This is a personal experience issue. This is, these are people who had consciousness of the idol, who ate with worship in their minds towards an idol, who spent a lifetime and Spending 20, 30, 40, 50 years doing something is a big deal. There are some with consciousness of the idol until now have ate it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience now that they hear, no, you can eat this now. Their conscience now being weak is defiled. Now when he says the word weak, He's introducing different levels of knowledge and conscience, what I would call conscience development. He's saying some are strong and some are weak. He's also saying in this particular matter, the weak conscience, the weak brother, the weak sister is unable to eat this food and be free from it inside, in their conscience. Which begs the question, what is a conscience? The conscience is acknowledged in the Bible as the center of human moral awareness in our soul. The center of human moral awareness in our soul. Paul, throughout his writings, and Luke in his. It even shows up in the Gospels, but Paul and Luke predominantly referred to the conscience pretty regularly. And it's never referred to as something that should be just cast off and ignored, part of the old man before salvation and irrelevant anymore. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he stands up to make his defense before Felix in Acts chapter 24, he says this in verse 16. This being so, I myself, Paul the Christian, 
always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I myself always strive as a Christian to live with a clear conscience, a conscience without offense before God and before men. You can do a cross-reference on the word conscience in the New Testament pretty easily with the most basic Bible software and see we are not encouraged to simply disregard our conscience as some irrelevant, you know, cast off of an old life. And now that we have the Spirit of God, it doesn't matter anymore. With that said, we should acknowledge the conscience is not always right. Why? Because as I said, it is the center of human moral awareness. And human moral awareness can go way, way off course. In fact, as Christians, we believe it starts way, way off course. And it doesn't get closer. It gets further away apart from the work of Jesus Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. When I was a kid, we watched the movie Pinocchio. Any of you know where I'm going with this? Okay. And there was a cricket who told a wooden puppet that in order to be a boy, he needed to be a good boy, and some kind of fairy godmother creature showed up and told this cricket to keep this wooden puppet on track. And suddenly this cricket burst into song, let your conscience be your guide. Always let your conscience be your guide. How many of you have no clue whatsoever what I'm talking about? I'm telling you, Pinocchio has been around for a long time, all right? This is not exactly pop culture that I'm getting into here as a, as a reference. Well, don't let your conscience always be your guide. The conscience is not always right. In fact, here's Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, speaking of the work of false prophets and false teachers doing damage inside the church. This is what he says. They speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Continue on in this false prophet conduct. Now what does that mean? It means they have had their own sense of right and wrong seared with a hot iron. Like when they used to behave this way, perhaps it was like a bleeding heart at one point in time. And they knew this isn't right. They knew this isn't good. They knew there was some sense of this is not as it should be. And that wound has been closed as if someone seared it with a hot iron and they don't even feel the moral repercussions of what they say and do anymore. That is not just reserved for false prophets and false teachers. Men and women in all shapes and forms, in all walks of life, sear their conscience all the time. They find some way to forget about the moral implications of what they're doing. They find some way to reclassify evil as good and good as evil. There are people deliberately at work Right now, in our culture, in our country, in our communities, to sear the consciences of other Americans so that they reshape what they thought previously was wrong as now right and embrace this as a mandate for a place in society. This is not a political message. 
but with every Democratic president since Bill Clinton. There has been a pronouncement in the year of the Democratic president's first uh, tenure that June would be Gay Pride Month. And we just had Gay Pride Month 2021 under the pronouncement of President Biden. Now, when President Biden did that, do I believe he is wrestling with the moral weight of what he is doing by affirming immoral sexual behavior for everyone who could possibly see? No, I don't believe that. I don't believe he's struggling with this. Why? He's made up his mind. His conscience is seared. Now, he's the same guy who once held to the traditional values of the Catholic Church by his own profession. And this was wrong. And this was dangerous. This was destructive. But he's had a shift. We watched President Obama evolve in office on this issue, elected under one pronouncement of his moral beliefs and changed in the middle of it. This is not a political message, but you can see this in our political leaders. Paul is telling Timothy, you can see this in the church. And it's not just with cultural hotbed topics. It's with everything. You can see it in the lives of your co-workers, of your family members, who at one point said, this is sin, and now, not so much. So the conscience is not always to be our guide. There's a phrase that appears in the Old Testament. During the time of the judges, and it's, it's odd because it almost sounds good when you hear the phrase. The phrase is, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, every man is doing what they believe is the right thing, and yet that's the phrase used to describe great evil in the time of Israel. <laughs> Why? Well, think about it. If the conscience is to be our guide, and if your feelings about right and wrong are to be the ruling authority for your life, then every human being is their own authority on good and evil. There is no, then, exterior source of knowing good and evil. There is no higher authority of good and evil. And that's what the Israelites had got themselves into. They themselves had made themselves the chief arbiter of all that was right and all that was wrong. We can't do that. When I am faced with the question of right and wrong, I must have the humility to say, God knows what's right and wrong here. What do I know about this from Him? My inclination might be wrong. My sin might be justified in my mind. But does God justify me for it? What has He said? If there is no higher authority of right and wrong, you can justify any sin. Go back to the days of Nazi Germany. These are people who at one time 
believed in the sanctity of human life, believed in the preciousness. I mean, Germany is the country from which so many great world theologians have come from. And in a period of a dozen years, a leader who rose to power on promises managed to convince them that their entire moral framework for understanding human life was wrong, should be understood in a new way, and they should swing to the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And convinced an entire nation of people to do this. Should their conscience be their guide? No, sir. No, sir. There is no evil that the human mind cannot plumb if we set ourselves up to be the moral arbiters of our day. Our founding fathers recognized this, even those who were more deists than Christians. And so, as a ruling, governing idea for all people, even in a country of pronounced religious freedom, they made one statement the centerpiece of what they were going to write, one nation under God. In God, we trust. Why? Because they all believed in the Christian God. They all held to the core tenets of our belief. No! But they knew. If we depart from the idea that there is a creator with moral authority, there is no evil we can't find ourselves justifying. And when Abraham Lincoln and the leaders of the nations appealed to the republic to reverse hundreds of years of mistreatment and abuse in slavery, they appealed on the grounds of a God who would judge them. And when Wilberforce did the same thing in England before that, he appealed to a parliament who was pro-slavery. He appealed to them for decades that the Christian God, which was the official God of England itself, would hold them all accountable for this hypocrisy. Folks, we cannot trust our own sense of right and wrong apart from the, acknowledge of the, the acknowledgement of the supremacy of God and the human reality that every single one of us will give an account to Him. You strip that away and there will be no cohesion anymore. There will be no agreement anymore on what is good and what is evil. And that is why the turmoil exists so much today in a great many places. Ah, but the conscience is not a bad thing. For the Christian, the conscience is transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul in Romans 9. Just the first two verses speaking of his conscience and the Spirit of God working together. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For the Christian, the human sense of right and wrong, the human sense of morality comes under the sweet authority of the Spirit of the living God in our lives. 
And over time, we are transformed to possess what Paul calls in some places the mind of Christ. And Paul now speaking to these weaker brothers is acknowledging that this is a transformation process that those who are already there in their understanding of this particular issue should patiently consider the weak in. The conscience and the Holy Spirit are not the same. One is very human. You don't need the Spirit of God to have it. And the other is God Himself. Here, in verse 7, a weak conscience is still scarred, one still scarred by a former life. And Paul is pleading with the strong to consider that. Now, look at verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. This is, I don't know if you caught it, but this is an amazing thing that Paul just did. In verse 7, he is speaking in terms of strength and weakness. Now, if I ask you, would you rather be strong or weak, which one are we all going to say? Well, if I, no other cost me, I'd prefer to be strong, right? But in verse 8, he turns the tables. And he says, strength and weakness is not the same as better and worse. The person who is strong and who is governed by what they know and can eat with a clear conscience is not the better Christian. The person who is weak and is defiled when they partake in these things and struggling is not the worse. Strength and weakness is not the same as better and worse. What we know might make us a little stronger or a little weaker when compared to each other, but not a little better or a little worse before God. There is no moral high ground. There is no moral high ground for being a little stronger than someone else in one area. Verse 9, last point. So, Number one, knowing what's right is important. Number two, understanding strength and weakness in conscience. Number three, gospel love in action. Here is verse nine. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter and then we'll speak to it. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience... You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
There is a lot to unpack there, and we're going to do it quickly. Verse 9. The strong are to act with consideration for the weak. It says, Beware lest somehow this freedom of yours, this liberty of yours, to eat food without sin. Beware lest it become a stumbling block to those who are weak. The strong, and this is a general rule for all of Christian living, the strong should act with consideration for the weak. And when you hear that, you should think of Jesus. When you hear that, you should think of the Son of God who left His place in glory to become a man, to surrender Himself to death on a cross so that those who are weak might be saved. So that those who are in peril might be rescued. If you are in the church and you are a Christian and you possess some knowledge and you could exercise some freedom, understand this. You have a Christ-focused, a Christ-centered obligation to always think of the weaker brother or the weaker sister. You have a moral obligation so strong that to act in violation of this in this text is called sin. In fact, sin against Christ. Does this mean that a stronger person who eats meat and creates a stumbling block for a weaker person is sinning because they ate the meat? No, we've already covered that. There's no sin in eating the meat. But the stronger brother who eats the meat to the stumbling of the weaker brother and the failure of their conscience sins against his weaker brother by abusing his conscience in that way and leading him into some violation. Verse 10 says, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, and they would set up almost like courtyards outside the temple to eat the food that had been sacrificed that day, almost like restaurants but with clearly far more significant overtones where people would come by and buy and eat. If you do that, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to the idols? What's so bad about that? Verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish? How would he perish? If it's not sin to eat the food sacrificed to idols, then shouldn't we just look at the weaker brother, smack him upside the head, and force feed him this stuff until he gets over it? How many of you were raised in a home like that? You know? Dad, I'm afraid of the roller coaster. I don't want to go on. I have the perfect solution. We're going to ride 10 times in a row. And then you won't be afraid anymore. You know? Dad, I'm really scared about operating this piece of equipment. I get nervous every time. I don't know what to do. No problem. We're going to spend the next three hours on this piece of equipment. And then when you're off the equipment and your nerves are shattered and you didn't die and your father looks at you like a good father, didn't we? We really accomplished something today. Don't you feel better? Are you afraid of the equipment anymore? No, I'm not afraid of the equipment, but I'm terrified to tell you what I'm afraid of, Dad. You know? So why not just smack all the Christians in the back of the head and say, hey, Paul said there's nothing wrong with this. 
Guess what we're eating for the Lord's Supper this weekend? We're going to get over all this stuff together. What's the problem? Paul says there's a big problem. You would cause that brother to perish? Now, when I think of the word perish, it sounds pretty serious to me. I mean, stumble. Uh, If he stumbles, he can get back up. But there's no coming back from perishing. What's the big deal? Let me ask you a question. Does any Christian's growth and maturity in Jesus Christ come by he or she learning to violate their conscience? Does anyone grow in Christ by teaching themselves to do that which they feel is evil just because someone told them it wasn't so bad? Is that the prescription for Christian growth? It's not. It's not. The prescription for Christian growth is to surrender your life to Jesus, have the Holy Spirit take hold in your heart, serve in Christian community with one another, and grow in your knowledge and understanding of the Word. And the reason why that growth in knowledge and understanding of the Word is so important is because as you grow there, your mind begins to transform. Your conscience comes along. You grow. You see things the way Christ sees them. But friends, that is not merely a switch that gets flipped the moment that you get saved. What would be the destruction if you take a drunk and they come into the church and they're repenting of drunkenness and then you tell them, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that drinking alcohol is sin. Let's go have a beer. And they say, oh, I don't feel good about that. Why not? Because I used to be there every single Friday night. I close the place down day after day. I know what happens in there past that hour. I know what I've done. I know where that leads. I don't feel good about that at all. I can't do that with a clear conscience. Tough it up, man. Don't you know what the Bible says? Come violate your conscience with me under the freedom of the text. Is that Christian growth? No. No. Let me tell you something. Something you already know. When a Christian becomes comfortable violating their conscience over and over and over again, that is the death of Holy Spirit-driven growth. That's what we hate about temptation. That's what we hate about justifying sin. All that stuff is there. Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, transforms and molds the conscience of a Christian. And that can happen slowly to where a person can go from weakness to strength. But the strong person who acts with reckless abandon towards the sensitivity of a weaker brother trying to overcome the behavior of a former life, the strong person who acts with reckless abandon and teaches that person not to consider things whether they're right or wrong, but to just go by whatever we can see in the text that person is making a huge mistake. In fact, whenever you look at a Christian brother and sister 
and you decide to act on something irregardless of their spiritual growth and maturity, irregardless of where they are as a person, irregardless of how this might affect them, you are being callous and foolish. We have the Christian responsibility to not just act within the freedom of Christ, but to, within the freedom of Christ, bind ourselves up in the growth of the body of Christ. The freedom of Jesus Christ is not a freedom to personal growth and development at the expense of the others around you. To serve Christ is to serve with mercy and compassion the body of Christ who are his people. To live and to act in consideration of them even at great cost to yourself. And this is Paul in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, if what I eat could lead my brother in Christ into sin, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. I will go, this is Paul, I will go so far to the opposite extreme that I possibly can if it means I'm not going to put a big obstacle in the path of one of these little ones in Jesus Christ who he died on the cross to save. I will do whatever I can. Sometimes you can't. But here he says, I will do whatever I can and I can control whether or not I eat this meat. Not to shipwreck the salvation of someone for whom Christ himself gave his life. Jesus died for this person. I can go without meat. Jesus died for this person. I can go without a beer. <laughs> Jesus died for this person. I don't need to watch that movie or listen to this music or whatever it may be. Christian freedom, and it's not lost upon me that it's the 4th of July and we're talking about liberty, okay? And I'm glad we live in a country with so much liberty. Very glad. I was talking to Jim about that right before the service. And I brought it up to Jim. Jim was slow. He didn't even make a mention of it. It's all right, Jim. I'm glad we live in a country with the freedoms that we have. But just because I have a freedom does not mean I have to exercise it to the expense of my brother or sister in Christ for whom Jesus Christ died. Jesus had freedom and he laid it down and he bound himself to a cross like a sacrificial lamb. He bound himself to a public stone, to a public plank, so that he could be whipped by sinners. Jesus had freedom, and he bound himself to no defense when he could have called down an army of angels. Jesus had freedom, and he patiently walked around with foolish men and women who were far weaker than he was who did not belong on the same theological plane and who he patiently labored with. He even bore their criticism at different points, rebuking them for it, but criticized the Lord, second-guessed Jesus. 
Jesus did not die on the cross so that you can eat whatever you want and drink whatever you want and do whatever you want. That is not the freedom He was purchasing for you. He died to free you from the bondage of sin and death. And if you are a sinner, you are in bondage. If your life is overrun by sin, you are enslaved. And that master will condemn you to eternity in hell. A place that you and I can't even imagine. It seems almost like a fairy tale. A place of eternal suffering in darkness. Where no physical death will ever bring relief. If that sounds unfathomably serious to you, take heart. It was so serious to Jesus that he was willing to be tortured and die to save you from it. It is the gravity of hell that makes sense of what we see at the cross. It is the imminent danger that we don't want to think about that caused Jesus Christ to take on flesh and stand in your place. It is the righteous anger of a holy God that is both real and eternal that brought out in God the greatest display of mercy and compassion that this world will ever know that God would take on flesh and die for you. This is gospel love. And if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you right now to put your faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the grave for you. He sent His Spirit into the earth so that there might be a church to preach to you. And He is coming again to fulfill His promises to His people. Promises to His people. I look here, I see God's promises in what we're going to observe together this morning. But I remember a picture from yesterday of God's promises too. Anyone who believes in me, yea, though he die, yet he shall live. And anyone whom Jesus Christ brings to life will never die. I want to invite you to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's close with the word of prayer. And as I pray, Steve and the men who will serve us will come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the shedding of your blood. I thank you for the gift of your body. But most of all, I thank you for what these purchased for me, freedom. Father, help us to honor you now, to consider our own sin. To rejoice in your resurrection, even at the cost of your suffering to cling to the promises that you've made. They are better than the promises this world makes. 
And if anyone does not know those promises, the promises of eternal life, the promises of salvation, the promise of fellowship with you, Father, I pray now that you will impress upon perhaps seared consciences the reality of their sin and the judgment that's coming upon it. That hearts of stone will beat again. That wounds from immorality will bleed again. And that they will see in you a salve and not a searing hot iron. That you will put inside them a new heart that you will transform them into the image of your Son, that you will be to them a Father. I thank you for these promises. They are my treasure, and we remember them now. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.